0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Andrew Brandt. Andrew is the former vice president of the Green Bay Packers and one of the sharpest minds in sports business today. So we sat down to discuss various topics around the NFL, including Colin Kaepernick's workout with the Las Vegas Raiders, Dan Snyder's NFL future, what might happen to the annual Pro Bowl, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew, and I hope that you do also. Before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by WHOOP. I've been wearing a WHOOP for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. WHOOP automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but WHOOP interprets the data for you so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code JOE at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter JOE at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I am falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. The results are proven to be true. 8sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. So go to 8sleep.com Joe, that's J-O-E, for exclusive Memorial Day savings through June 6th. Cool down this summer with 8sleep, now shipping within the USA, UK, Canada, and Australia.
1: Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: All right, let's get into this episode. All right, everyone, our friend Andrew Brandt has returned to the program. He is back for another week. We appreciate him joining us. Andrew, how are you? I'm good. Always good to be with you,
1: Joe. And since we did the last one, we've actually met in person, which was really great for you and I to get together down in Miami.
0: It was awesome. I hope you enjoyed your time in Miami. I know you're in LA now. You're traveling all over the world. So, so that is fun, hectic, and enjoyable, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I think I'm in a stage, as I talked to you about, where I'm an empty nester, and I sort of got to be around during the school year because I do run a program at at Nova Law School. But when I get time free, I just go see my sons, one in Dallas and one in L.A. So I'm out here. He's a music producer, and I'm in his studio right now. So it's, it's a great time to be with my guy.
0: I was just joking before we started that the acoustics sound great. So it's a good spot to be. Let's start with some of the NFL stuff. So Colin Kaepernick recently worked out with the Oakland, or not the Oakland Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders now. He didn't get signed yet, at least. They brought him in, though. The, the reports say the workout went well, but he left unsigned. Talk me through kind of the thought process from your previous experience with the Packers and whatnot. Like, why are they doing this? What exactly takes place when they do do this? And what, if anything, might come of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because maybe one of the most talked about players in the NFL the last five years is Colin Kaepernick, but he hasn't played a snap. So to get people up to date, after what went on with his social activism and protests, nothing really happened. He did have a collusion suit against the NFL. That was settled. We don't know the amount, but it was settled. He had a NFL-sponsored workout back in Atlanta like three years ago, but it was kind of a cluster because he didn't agree to the waiver they wanted to sign. He moved the event to another venue at a high school near Atlanta airport and didn't go so well and of course no one signed him. Now we have this tryout with the Raiders. A couple things, Joe. I think number 1, I don't think he's going to get signed. I'll be right up front with that. Two reasons. Number 1, he hasn't played in 5 years. Think about the last player, if you can name one, I don't think I can. That hadn't played for 5 years and all of a sudden signs to an NFL team. The other thing is of course what comes with Kaepernick. And again, I'm not saying this is negative. I'm not saying there's any pejorative aspect to this. But I know NFL teams, and I know where we were at the Packers. You'll put up with other stuff, other attention, other drama for your stars, certainly. That's what teams do. Stars come with a lot of attention about things beyond football. It happens. But you won't put up with that for a backup player. You just won't teams will not put up with attention, drama, other quote unquote stuff around backups. And Colin Kaepernick would clearly be a backup second string at best to Derek Carr, maybe third string, maybe trying to make third string. So that's where we are. And you heard it from coach Josh McDaniels and the general manager basically saying, poo-pooing it like, hey, we tried a lot of players. We have tryouts all the time. And really sort of throwing water on any idea that he was about to get signed. So good that he got tryout, but I don't think it's going to be a signing.
0: So my question then would be, right, if you say that they're not going to put up with this kind of attention, or most teams at least would not put up with this kind of attention for a backup, my mind would immediately say, why try him out in the first place? But Because it's very clear, right? Derek Carr is a starter. He's the backup. He may even be third string with Nick Mullins there who has played a lot of football also and been successful too, winning games and whatnot in in San Francisco. Is the general idea then that he was never actually going to sign immediately, but he's probably a good option if someone does get hurt as a backup and someone that they want to keep on a list, have familiarity with in the in the practice facility, know kind of his medicals, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I mean, I used the key word there, used list. So every team, obviously we did at the Packers, have a ready list for every position. And it really comes in handy with injuries and injuries during training camp, injuries preseason games, and most importantly, injuries during season games where I was the guy, Joe, I was in the box when we had an injury and our personnel guy would look at me and say, all right, get him.
0: How quick does that happen?
1: The one we bring in to replace would be there when we got to the office Monday morning. So injury would happen Sunday. We'd get him on a plane Sunday night, physical Monday morning. He's
0: in. So say your running back gets hurt first quarter. Are you basically getting the heads up immediately during the game? You're calling whoever is on that list, telling them, hey, get on a plane, come out here. They land Sunday night, Monday morning, you meet them at the facility.
1: Yeah. The first thing is obviously getting an assessment from the trainers. That would go to the GM. The GM would say three, four weeks or more. We got to get someone in. The GM and I would both know who the ready list player is. And then I'd reach out to the agent. The agent was always the gateway to the player. Tell the agent, you know, we got a flight form in two hours. He better be on it we see in the morning. It happens that quick.
0: Yeah, that's amazing because then it starts to make a lot of more sense in that context why they would have not only Kaepernick try out but a bunch of other players try out to have this list ready. If God forbid Derek Carr did go down or Nick Mullins was to go down or get traded, etc., then you have someone else on your list that you know somewhat about at least and, and can make a decision from there whether right or wrong, whether you want to sign them or not. Yeah, I, you can at least pick.
1: I think that's what happened. The other part of this is always there's always a coaching connection. And with a player like Kaepernick, a player that's a veteran that's been around, that's out of the league, really, the only way they get tryouts is some coaching connection. Mick Lombardi was with the 49ers during Kaepernick's glory days. And certainly as a Packer fan, I remember those glory days. He ran all over the Packers for a couple playoff games. So there's the connection. Mick's in Vegas with Josh McDaniels. Mick coached him in San Francisco. And that was the connection. So it made some sense when you think about that. Gotcha.
0: So to close it out, try him out, see how he looks, keep him on a list, but probably doesn't get signed, in your opinion, unless something drastic happens, whether it's Las Vegas or somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a ready list guy. If Carr goes down, as you said, the backups move up. If they're keeping three quarterbacks, bring them in. Then now with the rules, that change due to COVID, you can have veterans on the practice squad. So that could be even an option for Kaepernick, where in the past, in my day, you couldn't have veterans on the Packers Squad, only young players.
0: So that's an interesting twist to this as well. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I think we're probably just getting started, although we've been doing this for five years, right? I don't know if it'll slow down at all until he either says that I don't want to play or a team signs him. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the future.
1: Yeah, and I'd be remiss before we end this part on Kaepernick to say that what he preached, you know, back in 2016, of course came to fruition. I mean, he was talking about police inequities and disparate treatments for minorities, especially blacks. I don't know if the word is embraced, but his preachings were kind of embraced by the NFL in 2020 with the George Floyd situation. And it may have been just (laughs) ironic that all that stuff about Colin Kaepernick and the former president and all that stuff came back in 2020. And now we have end racism on the helmets and the stuff in the end zones and all of that and i just sort of give credit to kaepernick for sort of bringing that awareness although it didn't come till later on you know he'll be a figure that we talk about for years and years in sports law sports
0: business and certainly sports activism yeah that's a good point to mention because as the time goes on he somehow has become more polarizing to some degree and i think people forget kind of exactly what happened And you talk to different people and you get a bunch of different answers, but I always recommend everyone go kind of read some of the origin stories on why he was doing exactly what he was doing who recommended he was doing exactly what he was doing and the format that he would do it in, because I think that confuses a lot of people and it gives you context on, on why he did what he did. And again, the format in which he did what he did. And it was really meant as a sign of actually respect versus disrespect, which I think a lot of people took it and and you can go a bunch of different ways about it. And everyone has their own opinion, which they're, they're rightfully entitled to, but I always recommend that people actually go back and they, they read some of the original stuff because History seems to forget some of these things as as the events move further apart. So again, I think it's something that will continue to come up, and to your point, will be talked about for a long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just remember my ESPN days. I was there eight years, and during all that, and they would always put me out there on uh, to do segments, and they label the segments anthem protests, and I would say to the producers, "Not really anthem protests." Yeah, you know, but it was like, hey, that's that's what we're going with. So. That's what happens in media sometimes, and it, it was a nuanced subject, as it still is. So that's, that's what made it difficult.
0: That's what I was going to say too. Not only is it nuance, but certainly immediate to some degree. But social media is even worse when it becomes to people that don't even talk about this stuff for a living. It's this topic where people act like it's it's black or white, right? Like there's just one side or the other. When in reality, if you want to be reasonable about it, you want to talk about these things and you want to debate them. That's probably the healthiest way to do it. Versus just sticking your foot in the ground and saying I don't believe what he did was correct or I think that was the right thing to do. Whichever way you are, there's probably. Ground to gain on each side, which I think is important, not only with him, but everything in life. So that's probably just a caveat there. But let's talk about Dan Snyder. Dan Snyder is in the news every single week now. This is not something that will probably go away anytime soon unless he either transitions ownership to the team or leaves completely. But he is in the news because we've talked about this before. Everything obviously has happened over the last few years with some of the allegations against the team. But now the financial allegations against him actually diverting revenue or hiding revenue or lying about revenue, keeping different sets of books, et cetera. And now there's reports that owners are, quote, counting the votes to kick him out or or, or vote him out of the league. Let's run through first the process of how this actually works so people get an understanding of the possibility of this, if it's possible at all.
1: You know, the process is 24 votes. That's three quarters of the league. There are 32 teams, 32 owners, 31 owners, plus the Green Bay Packers. And they would have to vote in private session with Roger Goodell. And it would be an amendment. It would be a proposal from an owner or a series of owners that Roger Goodell would put forth into the group. That we would, I don't know what the phrasing would be, but we would rescind franchise rights. From Daniel Snyder, and that probably would be the way they phrase it, very legal. That's the process. You've sort of started the litany of sort of the not great stuff that has gone on with the Washington Redskins slash football team slash commanders. And again, very personal for me, born and raised, huge fan. My friends and family still are around DC the same way. And they always say to me, Andrew, can this happen since that report? Like almost wishful thinking. And I I just have to say to them and to you, Joe, don't hold your breath. Yes, there's been toxic workplace. There's been sexual harassment. There's been financial improprieties. It took three decades to change the name. But because of all that, it kind of proves my point. Daniel Snyder is a survivor. Daniel Snyder has allies. Daniel Snyder has protection in the league because all of these things have not made a dent in his ownership. And he has powerful allies. I know one for sure is Jerry Jones. At least from my knowledge recently, they're close. And that is a powerful ally to have. He wields a lot of influence, Jones does, in the NFL circle. So I just think that would be really tough. The other part of his do owners want their skeletons brought out? And Daniel Snyder may be the most litigious owner in the league. So if there was a chance that 24 votes would go through, he would hold this up in court litigation for one, two, five years. So I, I'm i sorry to people that are, are
0: not liking this answer, but don't hold your breath. Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair in my view also. My question would be like, What is the incentive for other owners to do this, right? Because for them to actually go in and and gather together and get the votes and do this process, it's going to be lengthy. It's going to be contentious. Obviously, people are going to be on different sides of the argument, and it's not going to be easy. There will be lawsuits. There will be all these different things. So you have to think about what they get out of this, right? It's not just, oh, we want the league's image to improve. Right, I I doubt that. At least, is there something financial? Is there an obvious brand image kind of thing? Is like, what incentive do they have to actually go do this?
1: Well, there is some brand part of that. I think on the pure financial, these improprieties. Again, I had the reporter that broke the story about these visiting team revenues. It was not fully accounted for. It was put into different buckets. Should have been put in the visiting team share bucket. It was put in a concert bucket or something like that. But I think the amounts. To you and I may seem a lot, but I think they were relatively negligible, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions. And yes, that doesn't look good. And that's not going to look good. You, You mess with the other owner's money. That's a big problem. But I do think it's more brand. All the things I just went through and you went through, it's not a good look. And it extends past Washington to the brand, to the league. Again, three decades to change the name and then all the other stuff in the past 10 years. I had women on my podcast. They were told to not wear flat shoes, only high heels. They were told not wear pants, only short dresses or skirts. This is what went on. But again, I keep getting back to if that was going to be a problem, you would have thought he might have been pushed out sooner. And let's be clear, that investigation did result in two things, a $10 million fine. And Daniel Snyder, I don't know how long, Joe, but is out of day-to-day management. That is his wife, Tanya, right now. So I don't know how long that goes. But for instance, the league meetings last week and league meetings in March, she, not he, was representing the team. So there is some sanction going on. I don't think it will result in any kind of forced sale.
0: Yeah, when I get asked about this also, my general response is similar to what you first mentioned. I don't think it's going to happen for a bunch of different reasons, but the main one being it sets a very dangerous precedent for a bunch of owners that don't want this to happen to them, Sure, right? Because at the end of the day, he got a fine, he's removed himself and his wife has taken over. But a lot of these things are still allegations to a point and haven't necessarily been proven true or false one way or the other other owners don't want to put themselves in a position where something similar could happen to them for allegations, whether true or false, to have themselves removed from ownership of their team. And I think that they would think long and hard about that before voting to actually remove another owner and ultimately putting themselves in a position where that could happen to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, people ask me, what about Jerry Richardson with Carolina? What about Donald Sterling in the NBA? And I would guess I would distinguish this. I'm trying to put this delicately, Joe they were kind of on their way out from a age and mental capacity. Yeah. So that's a little different. And I, I, I don't really feel comfortable even elaborating on that. But those were a little different.
0: The stories are there. Anyone can go read them. The stories that came out afterwards, especially, it was very obvious that some of these things with, with both those people had been going on previously and, and they weren't necessarily shocking to some degree.
1: But even with Donald Sterling's history and everything going on, I remember that day vividly and Mark Cuban, who you and I both admire, he said, we got to watch it here. You know, this could be a slippery slope. I remember those words and it's just what you talked about. Do we want this precedent? I'm a lawyer. It's all about precedent. Do we want a precedent of pushing out an owner for you name it, you know, because the skeletons will come out? Yeah. The scrutiny on these owners is, is more than it's ever been. And we've already seen, I said how much influence Jerry Jones wields. He's had some incidents in the past six months and they don't seem to stick, but those are happening as well. So I don't think owners want all this scrutiny. What happens to Snyder could happen to them.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about staying within the NFL realm, the Denver Broncos. I'm sure this is something that you've been following as as most people in the sports business world are. The team is up for sale. They're kind of going through a bunch of different offers and, and bidders at this point. Is expected to sell for more than $5 billion, which would be the most all-time by far, would smash the record, actually, and is way more than the team. I believe the team was previously estimated by like Forbes or Sportacos under four 3.75 or something like that so it's obviously a hot commodity at this point and, and there's a lot of demand for it. Talk me through what you're seeing there and, and, and just the process in general
1: well again to set the stage and talk about litigation Pat Bolin had a couple wives several kids they fought for years over the trusts that were established and did not get it resolved and it's gone to sale. Joe Ellis is the president of the Broncos he used to be with the league I knew him from that. He is overseeing this process, and the trust is basically selling the team. Now we get to the bidding process. We are now, Joe, at the process where we've whittled it down to five groups, and they all are serious, serious financial bidders. We have Todd Boley, who just bought Chelsea for $5.2 billion, along with Clear Lake Capital. So Boley, by the end of the year, could own Chelsea, the Dodgers, and the Broncos. That would be historic. We also have Rob Walton, yes, the Walton family, Walmart, who is the richest, would be the richest NFL owner by a good margin. He has a net worth of about $58 billion, of course, with one of the largest companies in the world. We have the Ishbias, big mortgage people, big lenders, and they're doing it with Alex Antonopoulos, a Greek billionaire. And we have Josh Harris, who owns the Sixers and the New Jersey Devils was Magic Johnson part of that group as well. Big numbers. I'll tell you this, my experience with vetting potential owners, it's always going to be about personalities and do they mesh and do they know them and all these owners know these guys and they, they run in similar circles. But the bottom line is the bottom line. I mean, that's why if I had to handicap this, I would say Walton, because owners are, you know, they want to check the box. And the bigger the bank account, the better for them as they get into big business going forward with these people. So can he write a check? Can he do this? And the last sale was 2275 to David Tepper. And I was told by a reliable source, Joe, that there were bigger bids for the Carolina Panthers, but they were leveraged and no one could write a check like David Tepper so David Tepper has a lower bid. Maybe they gave a, up a 2-5 bid, which would have been a couple hundred million difference. But David Tepper could write a check. These these other ones couldn't.
0: Yeah, I think that's one interesting way to look at it. And I probably tend to agree with that, that if Rob Walton wants the team, he'll get the team, right? <laughs> Just he can write the biggest check. He's a single individual. He doesn't need a group. He doesn't need banks. He doesn't need leverage. He doesn't need all these loans or what might come out of it. So if he wants the team, And he gets approved kind of from a background check perspective and all of that. My guess is he gets the team just based on his ability to pay the highest price. If that number climbs up five, six, seven billion, that's probably crazy. Not likely to happen, of course. But if it starts getting higher and higher, he's the one that can keep bidding and bidding and bidding. It's interesting to me, too, because I'm curious if there's an advantage of or a disadvantage of just being a single bidder versus a group of bidders. Does that matter at all?
1: It's a good question. One thing the NFL is different than other leagues is there's no corporate entity ownership. There's no private equity. There's no corporate, like in other sports, the NFL wants this traditional model of a face at the table, a person, Daniel Snyder, Jerry Jones, Mark, you know, that kind of look. Yep. So a person w- would be the best, but they understand you're not going to get this kind of wealth very often with one person. So they have to be groups. In that vein, Joe, they even tweaked the rules recently that the principal owner has to qualify for a smaller
0: stake than he did. I don't know the number. It's like 30 or 40%, right? They have to own. So, so, uh, maybe I'm you know, off by a few percentage points, but I know there's like a, a minimum that the one person, the controlling owner has to own and then right. basically the rest can be split up. Is that correct?
1: And they lower that number because these franchises have become so valuable.
0: That's why I think that they're eventually gonna allow the private equity bidders, right? Because if you look at the other leagues, not only is it super expensive and, and if you're writing a, a hundred million dollar check, you want more than season tickets, right? You want, you want something outside of season tickets. Yes. You want something outside of a championship ring. If your team wins, like you want amenities, right? You want the full experience. If you're writing a $200 million check, $300 million check, same thing. And not only, do people want more for that money? But if you increase the demand for these minority stakes and the supply is fixed, obviously the prices go up. And and what do the leagues want? They want their franchises to sell for more money, right? They want the the bidding to increase. So I think similar to the NBA and all these other leagues, the NFL will have to do that at some point.
1: Yeah, I think they're going to have to. I, I thought about that rule with three families that, again, it's their family business. They don't have that kind of cash. The Browns, who own the Bengals, the Rooney's who own the Steelers and the Spanos family that owns the Chargers there's no way i mean they can compete financially with some of these bigger names because that was their business you know Jerry Jones was in oil Daniel Snyder was in direct marketing they all came from these massive wealth businesses but those are three teams that came from football that's their business and the Davis family with the Raiders i mean that's their business and You're going to have to adjust for families like that that just don't have that wealth.
0: Yeah, that's true. It'll be fascinating to see because I think every sale that happens now, people are watching to see if it sets a new record, if it sets a new precedence of of the value. And Denver's obviously a hot franchise. One other question on that actually is someone who has experience in, in the business side of this stuff. Did getting Russell Wilson increase the valuation at all? Did it not change anything? Does it matter? Like having a franchise quarterback when you arrive on day one now, for at least, you know, however many years he ends up playing, but five, ten years plus. Does that matter? Does that change anything?
1: I think it does. I think it makes it a more valuable franchise. It's hard to quantify, right? It's hard to quantify these kind of things. I know when LeBron went to Cleveland the second time, they talked about a hundred million dollar difference in valuation. I don't know where they got those numbers, but yeah, I think Russell Wilson could approach that kind of valuation difference between a no-name quarterback or Drew Locke, whoever it was, or Teddy Bridgewater. Because he is relatively, he seems like he's got a year, a lot of years left. I think that's what buyers would want to know, which is he's great, but how much time does he have left? And he looks like he's healthy, even though he's 32, could play a bunch more years. So I think that affects it as well. And it is a valuable franchise, but just note, Forbes, which is, again, one of the only sources we have, has it ninth. So if they get five billion, theoretically, that would mean eight other franchises would be worth more than that.
0: Yeah, and I have actually the numbers here. I, I tweeted this out a while ago, and I was just looking for context when they traded for Russell Wilson. Their Super Bowl odds, the Denver Broncos, went from forty-four to one to twelve to one, wow. right immediately. And the whole idea, right, is that if you're selling the team, you don't care about draft picks. You don't, you don't care about anything about draft picks. You don't care if you ever pick again, as long as you have that franchise quarterback that can increase the valuation today. Even if it's $10 million, $20 million, $100 million, it's certainly something when it comes to the, the sale of the team.
1: Pat Bolin, former owner of the Bolin heirs will never have to work again. That's for sure.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. And then what is it? Jerry Jones said he could get ten billion for the Cowboys, right? If he sold them,
1: but he wouldn't sell. It. But he no, wouldn't sell. He wouldn't do it. Yeah, he
0: set his price, but he wouldn't <laughs> sell. Them. And he probably wouldn't even sell them for for more than that, anyways. I mean, he's he's nearly eighty years old at this point, right? So I think he wants to win a Super Bowl, but we'll see.
1: I'm sorry, I mentioned four teams. There are a lot of teams that they didn't grow up with a family business, but you look at Jerry Jones, you look at Robert Kraft. Just they're never going to be sold. Right. They're just gonna stay in the family. Yeah. Which makes
0: it even more valuable, these teams. You know what's shocking to me too is obviously these numbers are difficult to estimate. Like if you look at Forbes list, they do the net worth, right? Everyone's income and all these things and You know, it's probably directionally correct sometimes, but in a lot of scenarios, we've seen that it's way off. I think Peter Thiel, one time they had his net worth at like a billion dollars or something like that. And he had more than that in his IRA or his 401k, right? It came out later on that he had basically a bunch of shares of PayPal and whatnot in his IRA and they blew up in value and all these things. So like directionally, it's probably correct. But I was surprised that how far off they may be on the Broncos price, right? Because if you think about one of my favorite stories where it's business actually recently is Ryan Smith. He bought the Utah Jazz. And I don't know if you've heard this before. When he went in there to buy the team, he sat down with the owners and they said, what do you want to pay? He literally pulled out his phone. He says this is directly from him. I think he said it on Adrian Wojnarowski's podcast last year. And he says he pulled out his phone, went to Forbes, saw what the team's valuation was and offered that. Literally did, did no due diligence, did no like financial models, like revenue multiple, none of that. He just said, this is what Forbes says you're worth. That's what I'll pay. Right. It's insane. Right. To think about buying a team for multiple billions of dollars off of a estimation of what it might be worth from a media company, essentially. But it's really funny in context of thinking about, like, now the Broncos may sell for five billion plus and they had them at, you know, three point seven five or something like that. Yeah. I mean, there's some game
1: changing sales. Obviously, the Balmer sale to the Clippers after Donald Sterling was stripped of his franchise. I think the highest sale was the Milwaukee Bucks at five fifty million. And that went for two billion. This will be one. This will be one of those game-changing sales where every other owner will be smiling year to year. See this number.
0: It seems like they time up too with the media deals, right? Because I'm assuming that the Bucks one was announced. I forget what year exactly that was, but that was probably pre the larger media deal that they did. Clippers was after, and now the NFL just signed this massive, you know, hundred billion dollar plus media agreement for the next decade. Now the Broncos are selling because you essentially set this floor right of revenue and income versus what was previously there even two years ago. And you're able to, to kind of model it out a little better.
1: You bring this up and it's a great point. Media deals are going to be delivering 300 million. This is a real number, 300 million per NFL team in a couple of years, 300 million. Now, some of that's going to be licensing money, but before you turn on your lights, An NFL team will get a check from the NFL, whether you're in Green Bay, Kansas City, Denver, Dallas, New York, L.A., $300 million. So say you buy a team for $3 billion. You get your money back in 10 years. Yeah. You get your money back in 10 years just for turning the lights on. So, yes, this is a whole new equation. Again, $110 billion of media deals over the next 10 or 11 years That in itself is going to raise this price considerably. So, yeah, I can see it hitting a $5 billion number when you're talking about 300
0: million coming back to you every year just for showing up. Well, especially because those numbers are going to increase, right? A decade from now, those numbers are going to be much bigger because of not only we're going through this weird dynamic now where. Everyone knows cable is – is the numbers are decreasing from a viewership perspective, and whether it's ESPN or, or, or Fox or any of these networks, they're losing cable subscribers. But now they have these streaming networks, which they're slowly trying to transition people to. But what that does is – and a lot of people don't talk about this is – it increases the demand for these rights because you have so many more bidders now right? So not only is Amazon coming in, who wasn't a traditional bidder, they didn't exist a decade or two ago, their streaming service when these rights went up for for bids. Now they do. They're wetting their beaks and saying, hey, we'll pay a billion dollars a year, which seems (laughs) like a small number, but it's a big number. You have Apple now, which is doing this with Major League Baseball. And what you're going to see is while they may lose subscribers, live sports are the only thing holding subscribers there. So they need to continue to bid for these assets and streaming services are flush with capital. And if a streaming service can come in and basically build the cable bundle again, but on their thing with live sports, what is it? 95 out of the top 100 broadcasts last year were football or or live sports in general. So if you're able to do that with streaming, like, you know, you might as well pay a billion dollars, $2 billion, $3 billion, whatever you can to make it work. So I think if you're buying a team, $300 million before you turn on the lights sounds incredible, but they're also probably even thinking a decade ahead at this point where if you can hold on to that asset, these numbers are going to get even bigger, whether it's $500 $600 $500 million, $600 million, maybe even a billion at some point in checks that you're getting from the league before you even turn on the lights.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the most successful sports league in history. And I'm asked about it all the time. I know we're going to talk about my experience teaching some European students. It's just, I guess it's like soccer in Europe where, you know, it almost seems like at five years old, it's mainlined into your veins. <laughs> the NFL is that way here. It's just, it's a phenomenon, a lot due to TV, a lot due to broadcast that has it changes the way we live. I mean, just Sundays are reserved for NFL for 20 weeks a year, 25 weeks a year. I mean, its its power is unrivaled.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that, though. you You've spent some time talking to students and educating people on the differences between the sports models professionally here in the United States, North America versus Europe with soccer and so forth. Talk me through a little bit of that and, and and what you're teaching people or talking to people about.
1: Yeah, when I saw you in Miami later that day, I started a two-day stint with UEFA Academy. UEFA has an academy for former players to get basically a master's in sports management. And these were a lot of well-known former players. I'm not a huge soccer fan, but I found out there are some big names. And Kaká was one, the Brazilian player who was up there taking notes at everything I said. They really have a hard time understanding the American model in that For instance, they're like asking questions like, so wait a minute, a player grows up in Texas, goes to college in Florida, gets drafted to play in Chicago, and can get traded to Seattle? Like, it just blows their mind. Like, what? Because as you know so well, the model in Europe is academies. The model in Europe is, or even South America, where you grow up. You're sort of pushed through, and the best players come out of it on the pro side. There's no idea of colleges or draft. And then on the business side, the idea of a salary cap, they don't really understand that. Now, UEFA has some financial fair play rules, but really, capped? You can't spend more on these players? And draft? Draft? What the heck? So I, I refer to American sports the more I learn about European sports is the American model is the law and order model of sports. Everything is law and order. We got caps, we got drafts, we got restrictions on free agency. We don't pay agent fees upon transfer. We don't pay transfer fees. It's very organized and you can't be a free agent until so many years. And we have franchise tax to even prevent the best players from being free agents we have maximum salaries in the NBA. All these things that just, again, the Wild West would be the European model. Law and order is the American model.
0: Yeah. I always find it interesting too, because people don't think about it in the context of monetization of fans often, but it's far and away American sports leagues, whether it's the NFL, NBA, MLB, etc., monetize their fan base better than any leagues in the world, right? If you look at the two examples I always use are the Premier League and Formula One compared to our American leagues, the NFL, you can use, for example, those leagues in Europe have four to five times more fans than the NFL does globally, right? They're just massive. Soccer is, is the biggest sport in the world. Mm. Formula One is a global sport, which helps tremendously. So while NFL is wildly popular here in the United States, a country of 330 million plus people, Formula One's global nature helps tremendously, and it's, it's a massive sport, but The NFL monetizes their fan base five to 10 times better than those sports, despite having significantly less global fans. And I think that's part of the reason, one, why the NFL is trying to expand it so aggressively to different markets, whether it's the UK, whether it is Germany now, whether it's Mexico, whether it's elsewhere. Obviously, breaking down some of those geographic boundaries is is massive to continue to grow the sport. But it speaks to their ability to monetize the fan base here in the United States. Part of that is, of course, the economy. It's the, the largest economy in the world. And fans have money like sports are willing to spend money. Right. But just the nature of the business, right? And I think a lot of European sports leagues are, are looking at that now and trying to emulate that. If you look at Formula One, what are they doing? They're coming to America to host more races because they know they can make a lot of money doing it. And now, if you look at the Premier League, I think with Todd Boley buying Chelsea, now 50% or more of the owners are American owners. And they see this opportunity to take these assets that have probably been under-monetized to a degree Mm -hmm. in the structure with promotion and relegation. And, you know, there's several differences, but they can probably monetize them better than they historically had and you still get that same multiple. You could sell them later on. They're super passionate fan bases. It's actually a larger fan base. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next decade when it comes to those ownership stakes, because there have been plenty of people, especially in lower tier kind of soccer or European football, whatever you want to call it, that have bought franchises, tried to make them Premier League teams, invested a bunch of money, failed and left. And it's obviously a different stakes, when you buy a club like chelsea you know they're not gonna get relegated anytime soon you would assume mm. so it'll be interesting to see like how they monetize that it's a big 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 price that he's paying and it'll be hard to see like right now i've talked to people in the sports world where they're like there's no way he makes any money doing this like there's just there's no way the price that he's paying is dramatically too high the same thing with redbirds purchase right they just bought a team in, in europe also yeah. and it's like sure maybe right? Maybe, maybe this price is too high, but what have we seen with sports assets all over the world? They've continued to climb in price as media rights increase, as sports betting becomes more paramount, as you know, all these tailwinds take the valuations higher. So in Todd Bowley's case, like, I don't think he's buying the team for, for bragging rights or flexing, right? I assume he wants to make money with the franchise and and probably have some fun doing it. And it'll be interesting to see like how those two models morph over time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm not an economist and I'm not a, a banker, but it just seems that sports franchises, sports properties, sports media seems pretty recession proof, pretty resistant to market changes. So you could sow graphs of other forces in the market, other businesses, other industries, other categories, and there'll be all these curves. But if you look at sports franchise value and sports media rights, it's a constant trajectory upwards from whenever from 1990. So it just keeps going up. The law and order is a big part of it because law and order means you can have labor peace with collective bargaining agreements that agree to caps and agree to drafts and agree to free agency restrictions. There's long-term agreements in all the sports now. We had a baseball labor strife earlier this year, but that's resolved. And of course, the media deals are in place. So with all of that, it's a great buy. I mean, you've got security of players, you've got security of media. What could go wrong?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens, but time will tell. The last thing I want to talk about quickly is the Pro Bowl. Ian Rappaport reported last week that the NFL is discussing the Pro Bowl this week and is talking about ways to improve it, including eliminating the traditional game and using that Sunday to, quote, showcase the players, right? End quote. I'm curious what your just opinion is really on the Pro Bowl in general and, and what you think might happen here.
1: Well, for reasons maybe a little different, Joe, I hated the Pro Bowl as a front office executive is the worst time of year for me because I'd have guys make it and they'd come back wanting new contracts <laughs> because the pro bowl every year was, is full of what I call the whisper crew. So you get out to Hawaii and now it's in Vegas or wherever. And all these other players and their agents and their friends would say, wait a minute, you're only making that, <laughs> you know, like the Packers and Brant, they're only paying you that you got screwed. Like, I heard it almost every year from some player coming back and saying, well, I was talking to so-and-so and he found a new agent out there and the, uh, whatever. So that's a sidelight. I always hated the Pro Bowl week. In terms of the game itself, Roger Goodell was very honest and open, which is not normal for him. So I appreciated him saying, it's broken. We can't have two high in touch out there. People don't watch that. People don't care about that. Now if I'm looking at the business side from from the Demory Smith players' side NFLPA you do whatever but we're getting paid. <laughs> like you got to pay us. So it's a big number. I mean it's something like 40,000 for the losing team, 80,000 for the winning team plus all the expenses of course, bring in two guests to Hawaii or Vegas or wherever it is. So I guess if it's protected on the pay side, we don't need to have the game. And then Smarter people than me can figure out what's the best marketing event. Is it skills challenges? Is it throwing passes to fans? Is it jumping into, you know, ball pits, whatever it may be, or long throw contests, as long as the injury thing is covered. But yeah, I think Roger Goodell has admitted we'll do something else besides a game.
0: Yeah. I know these numbers because I wrote about it last week, but I'm going to talk through some of the viewership stuff. The Pro Bowl last year had 6.7 million viewers, which a lot of sports leagues would kill for, right? That's, that's pretty good numbers. In comparison, the NBA all-star game was slightly less than that at 6.28 million, but it's much, much more. It's 400% more 500% more than the NHL all-star game. And it actually probably rivals, I, I don't have it in front of me, but some of the NBA finals games from a couple of years ago, the COVID season, I know some of those numbers were sub 10 million, so so right around there. Right. But the NFL draft, right, which is literally him just calling names off a sheet, averages between 10 and 15 million per year, the first round at least, right? So you're getting somewhere between maybe 50 or 60 percent of the viewership now for the Pro Bowl, which is supposed to be kind of your all-star game. And the problem really lies in my mind where you're taking a violent sport and you're trying to make it not violent, right? Which is obviously obviously very difficult to do. And you have players, well-known players like JJ Watt tweeting out, I've seen walkthroughs more intense than this, which is probably not what you want if you're Roger Goodell, right? But it's true. And I think to your point, he's been open, honest, and upfront about that. So it comes down to like, what do you do from here? I think, yeah, there's there's several things that you could think about, but I find it hard to believe that the NFL isn't going to take this a route similar to the NFL draft, where they try to build up this, you know, it, they've tried, right? They try to build this into this massive event where people are interested in it and they want to watch TV and, and they could sell sponsorships and do all these things. But the NFL is too big not to figure this out.
1: Yeah. The draft has been so different over the years. When I first started in the NFL, the draft was, I believe, one day, like Saturday, 8 a.m. to Saturday midnight or whatever it was. It's the longest day of the year by far. And then it was two days. And then it got to three days with the primetime stuff. And we've seen the Combine. Now the Combine is a big TV event. So everything morphs into some media-exposed extravaganza with the NFL. And of course, we know what the Super Bowl is like. And by the way, Pepsi pulled out of halftime sponsorship, so they're going to sell that for a massive number as well. They'll be the same with the Pro Bowl. It'll be some massive media event where everyone will sort of be there. But the problem for the Pro Bowl is, even before all this, is the stars don't come. In my day, Brett Favre's like, I'm not going, you know? <laughs> we had to sort of create an injury, you know? Aaron doesn't go. Brady doesn't go. And of course, the teams that lose in the championship game, they're like, yeah, I'm tired. I'm, I'm not going. So maybe, maybe another time of year, I don't know. Maybe a month after the season. You know, it's hard to know what will happen to fix this, but they clearly want to.
0: I joked last week that if you just put the two worst teams in the league, and made them play each other for the first overall pick, you could get 15 million viewers, (laughs) right? If you took the 31st and 32nd team who were first and second line for the pick and just said, hey, whoever wins this game gets the number one overall draft pick, you'd get a ton of viewers for that.
1: It's a good idea because they'd have a month off while the playoffs were going on. They wouldn't, you know, they could be ready.
0: Yeah. It's a good idea. You probably need to pay them their full game check. But but outside of that, you might be able to get them to come play. (laughs) which would be fun. All right, Andrew, this was great, man. Thank you so much for doing this again. One thing I do want to mention before we stop is your newsletter and the community that you're building around sports business and your experience and stuff like that. Certainly something that I've really enjoyed. I I think most people at this point have probably heard me mention it at least a time or two now. And I mention it so often because I really do enjoy it. So, Tell people where they can go find it, and then maybe mention a little bit about the new membership program that you launched and and are building up now.
1: Yeah, and back at you. I love your newsletter. It's daily. Mine is weekly, so it would be a nice touch for people to get both. I'm at andrew-brandt.com is the way you sign up, and it's a Sunday 7. It's seven thoughts I have for the week, and I sort of expand on each one in, in ways using my insight and perspective from my years in sports. And there's tweets and there's quotes and there's things not only about sports but life and fitness and things that I'm into. So I hope everyone joins up if you're not already. The Sunday 7, you just go to andrew and sign up. And now for people who want more of me, so I do a sports business league. So andrew-brandt.com slash And that is a daily video I give you every day and a weekly meeting. So we gather together and quarterly sort of seminars on different issues like the salary cap. So what I'm trying to do is create even a a smaller, but really invested community where I can give good value. It's always important to meet a good value for people that sign up for that. So again, thanks to you, Joe, for letting me expand on this, but I have a Sunday seven newsletter. Just go to andrew-brent.com, sign up and have a sports business league Andrew dash slash SBO
0: for daily interaction with me. The one thing I would say before we we hang up here is it's a no brainer for people who want to work in sports and specifically the NFL, not only for your experience, but your connections and, and the insights that you're giving on, on a daily basis here, the videos and so forth. So I think that is exactly what people should do. I think they should go sign up if they haven't already. So Andrew, thank you for doing this. I'm sure we will be doing it again soon. But thanks again for your time.
1: Thank you, Joe. I'll have you back on my pod soon as well.
0: I would love that. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.